Welcome back to Nukes of Hazard, a podcast from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, a nonpartisan, nonprofit based in Washington, D.C., with the mission to reduce and eventually eliminate the threat posed by nuclear weapons. I'm Jeff Wilson, the host of the podcast and a policy analyst here at the Center. We've been proud to have some really great episodes this year on the legacy of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings, the importance of women's voices in nuclear security, and looking at the forgotten history of America's nuclear arsenal. As a teaser, we are very excited for some of the projects that we've been working on for the new year, including the role of the president in commanding U.S. nuclear forces, and what a no-first-use policy would actually look like, as well as a very intense episode on what the impact of chemical weapons attacks in the Middle East have been. This was a special episode where we took questions from you, our audience and our supporters on social media, about some of the questions that you have about nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons policy. We had a whole lot of fun doing this, and it's something that I'm hoping that you guys will like and that we can do a whole lot more in the future. But we're not perfect. In this podcast, our goal, as always, is to help make sense of complex nuclear issues, but... In so doing, there is also a lot of nuclear jargon that gets thrown around. So a couple of clarifying notes. Today, you'll hear someone ask a question about NATO Article 5. Article 5 refers to specifically the mutual security assurances that NATO countries give one another, so that if any one country is attacked, the other countries will come in and defend them against any aggressor. You'll also hear us use the term MAD, which is short for Mutually Assured Destruction, And you'll hear me say ICBM once or twice. For those of you that don't know, this is short for Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, which is the large silo-based weapons that we keep out in the Midwest. on this special episode, I'm going to be joined by our senior policy director, Alex Bell, who will be answering questions with me. Before coming to the center, Alex served as the senior advisor in the office of the Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security. You'll also hear from Anna Schumann, our communications director, who will be asking all the great questions that you set in. Unfortunately, we couldn't get to all of your questions in this episode, but fear not, there's going to be more opportunities to ask questions in the future. So let's get started. Ethan from Ann Arbor, Michigan says, if the U.S. successfully reduces its nuclear arsenal to the bare minimum needed to deter nuclear attacks on America, will the NATO Article 5 commitment still be credible? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a great question from Ethan of Ann Arbor. I think the key thing here is the United States will not, should not, do any sort of reductions of nuclear weapons without talking to our allies. This is something that we haven't always done successfully in the past, but we are in these relationships because it's good for our security. So if we're making changes to our own plans, our own ideas, our own policies, we need to be consulting with them. But it's important to remember that every responsible effort that we make to verifiably reduce global stockpiles around the world, that's good for all our security, for the U.S., for our allies. So we really need to focus there and think about that end game scenario a little bit later on in the process. We've got about 14,000 nuclear weapons in the world. We have some time to think through that issue. 
Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, the United States conventional military presence in Europe with NATO countries is now, in fact, the inverse of what it was, what the fear was during the Cold War. NATO has conventional military superiority. That's not anything that's going to be going away. And I think that NATO states, despite what the president has said, and that we are going to continue to put money and forces and to bear out those commitments. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, extended deterrence is about more than nuclear weapons. It's conventional, it's theater missile defenses, it's legal and diplomatic structures that we put into place. And it's also the, the very clear and out loud commitment of the U.S. president re-articulating again and again that we will be there for our allies. Okay, Dan from Beloit, Wisconsin, wants to know, how can we use President Ronald Reagan's concept of mutually assured destruction to dissuade 21st century militaries from engaging in armed conflict? I'm glad Dan brought this up. People tend to forget that President Reagan was adamantly in favor of moving towards a world without nuclear weapons because he saw it was a danger that that we weren't going to be able to manage, that a nuclear war couldn't be fought uh, because it couldn't be won. And reminding people of those stakes, I think, is an important thing to do, particularly as these new technologies of the 21st century start to destabilize some of the security plans we've had in place for so many years, reminding people of why it is that we put controls through treaties or agreements into place to try to manage the worst impulses uh, of leaders around the world. And (laughs) I mean, I guess an effort to save ourselves from ourselves. Ethan from Albion, Michigan says, many scholars have argued that if the world somehow managed to achieve nuclear zero, states would have strong incentives to cheat and develop nuclear weapons programs. What is your response? I think this is a good question, Ethan. I think that this sort of this sort of belies the fact just how one how much is necessary to make a nuclear weapon, how much testing needs to go into actually weaponizing a bomb even once you've created one, like missile testing, weapons testing, miniaturization, and all of that takes time and effort that is incredibly becoming easier and easier for governments and international institutions and inspectors to see. And just sort of how intrusive international inspections regimes on this has become. The world has giant intelligence gathering services that keep pretty good tabs on what their adversaries are up to. And there is a forum through the IAEA to bring up intrusive inspections when people think that that there might be something untoward going on. Hmm. I'm going to come at this from a slightly different angle. Nuclear weapons present an existential threat to humankind. We have to keep making efforts to reduce the risk caused by these nuclear weapons and slowly reduce down to zero. Now, I know a lot of people like to focus on how the zero thing works, but I don't really think that's where our energy needs to be placed right now. I don't know what the end of poverty looks like. I don't know what the end of uh, systemic racism looks like, but we should be driving in those directions all the time. We simply can't control nuclear weapons forever. Eventually, our luck is going to run out. And really, the only way to prevent that is to start moving towards zero in a responsible way, in a verifiable way. And then if we're down to very low numbers and trying to figure out how to keep stability, then I would consider that a very high class problem. Jake from my hometown of Houston wants to know, why can't the U.S., Russia and China just all agree via treaty or executive agreements not to nuke each other should a war break out? 
Wouldn't this make a mad scenario at least somewhat less likely? So the thing that is getting in the way here, first and foremost, China has a much different sized nuclear arsenal. They've got about 300 nuclear weapons, as opposed to the U.S. and Russia, who have roughly 4,000 in their active stockpile and, and another about 2,000 in their inactive stockpiles. So it's hard to make an agreement when you've got those kind of varying forces. People also have different priorities. The Russians are very concerned about our missile defenses. We're very concerned about their tactical nuclear weapons. We haven't quite figured out a way to marry all those problems together. It doesn't mean we're incapable of it. We went from an incredibly dangerous situation with the Russians in the Cuban Missile Crisis to creating a a nuclear treaty to ban nuclear testing in almost every environment. in barely a year. We know how to do this stuff. Hopefully we don't have to wait for a crisis to get the ball rolling. And I really think the United States needs to lead here. We, we have historically been a leader on pushing people to the table to discuss these issues on how to reduce nuclear risks. We just need to retake that role. Yeah. And just going off that a little bit, the threat here is that should a war break out, that things would escalate into a nuclear war. I think that this is a good opportunity to highlight the importance of this no first use or declaratory policy making, right? This is something unilaterally that nuclear armed nations can do to say, we will never use a nuclear weapon first in conflict. Now, China already has this policy. The United States has a de facto policy of this, but it's never been made explicit. India has a no first use policy. And those aren't just things that sound nice or that look good on paper, but they're actually sort of these reaffirming policies that opponents know exactly when and why an opponent would ever use a nuclear weapon. We hold these to be deterrent weapons. They're only meant to ensure that somebody else doesn't nuke us first. And I think that that's something very important and something that's feasible in this environment. Dave from Phoenix, Arizona, sent a question via Instagram. Saudi Arabia developing nukes can't help stabilize the region. What's being done to prevent the spread of more nuclear states? Thanks, Dave, for the question. I I think it's a really important one, really timely right now. We definitely want to make sure that there are no nuclear states, Saudi Arabia or any country around the world. And it comes down to controlling access to the technology that's needed to build a nuclear weapons program. So that means civil nuclear cooperation agreements where we're working with a country on a nuclear energy program needs to have the appropriate safeguards in place so they can't turn that nuclear energy program into a nuclear weapons program. And international legal pressure, treaties, agreements, those are all important parts of of holding proliferation at bay. But it's never over. We won't ever be able to say, okay, done. No other countries are going to go pursue a nuclear weapons program. This is something we have to keep working at all the time. And that can get boring. It could get frustrating. It can get expensive. But it's really the price we have to pay to keep security in our modern world. Yeah. And just to add off of that, there was legislation in this most recent National Defense Authorization Act, I believe it was Representative Sherman's piece of legislation that specifically focused on this issue of Saudi Arabia and a nuclear agreement with the United States, saying that they would have to consent to an additional protocol. So there are people, even in this Congress, even in the United States government right now, who are very worried about these issues and that are taking them very seriously. Hey, Jeff, what's the additional protocol? 
<laughs> in two minutes? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an additional set of requirements that a country takes on themselves to, to basically open up their civil nuclear program for inspections by the International Atomic Energy Agency so everybody knows they're on the level. All right, we have another question coming from Instagram. Has anyone done a simple, plain English layman's guide to what, in the event of an accident, would be the circles of danger around nuclear plants in the United States with infographics? So I definitely know there's a a web tool called NukeMap that's amazing for getting people's heads around the danger posed by nuclear weapons. I'm not sure there is one for nuclear power plants specifically, but there's a lot of good content out there in the media, whether it's old school movies like The China Syndrome that Michael Douglas starred in, I believe in 1979, just a couple months before the Three Mile Island, very near nuclear catastrophe in New Jersey. That actually set Michael Douglas off on a lifetime of of anti-nuclear activism. There's also the recent HBO show Chernobyl that really shows in in stark relief the dangers of, of a nuclear power plant meltdown. But that's a, it's a little tangential to the work we do here, but we definitely kind of keep our eyes on the issue. Sarah from Twitter submitted a question. Are we still decommissioning warheads? Where does the nuclear material go? Where is the military storing its nuclear waste? So, yes, we are still decommissioning warheads. As Alex can talk about, it's happening slower than usual or that it used to. I think that that's sort of important to note here is where do we store this nuclear waste is a real problem that has been timely and newsworthy recently over the past couple of years. There are all sorts of ideas about how we should store this waste, and even some of the best of those have run into problems. We've seen fires in the waste isolation pilot plant in New Mexico, these big salt caverns where we've been storing uh, some of the waste from nuclear weapons development. There are also problems with the legacy and history of nuclear weapons development and where waste was stored incorrectly in landfills outside St. Louis that are now on fire, all sorts of problems. This is a legacy issue from the development of so many U.S. nuclear weapons, and it's one that needs more attention from people and from the government. We have built a big facility in Yucca Mountain, Nevada, that has been tested and retested and certified for waste disposal. But because of all the reasons Jeff mentioned, shockingly, people don't necessarily trust the government when they say this is a totally safe way to store nuclear waste, which is really one of the problems inherent in nuclear energy, even though it holds a lot of potential for dealing with climate change. The issue of where the waste goes continues to be a problem, so we'll have to continue to work that. I, uh, <laughs> I wish there was an easy answer for this, but right now nuclear waste is stored all over the country. We just haven't really figured out what to do about that. Luke from Sugarland, Texas wants to take us all the way back to the beginning with his question. How are plutonium and uranium used to make nuclear weapons, and are those materials widely available? Yikes. Um, This is a a heavy physics question, but I'll try to do my best. I'm not a scientist, but I have absorbed a lot of scientific material by osmosis and working in this field for, for a bit. So plutonium and uranium are elements that in certain conditions can create a self-sustaining chain reaction when fused or split apart. And that creates a burst of energy that can either be used for nuclear energy or a nuclear weapon. 
It's actually uh, interesting, a lot of the people who work on these very technical issues inside the government come from an astrophysics background, because the only other place the kind of bursts that happen in a nuclear explosion happen are in our sun. That's mm -hmm. actually what makes our sun work, is these continuous nuclear explosions. Fortunately, these materials are not widely available. While uranium is present in the ground all over the world, the particular kind of uranium that's used for a nuclear explosion um, has to be refined. It is not available in mass amounts, and you really need a state-based program to create this kind of material. And fortunately, you need this material to make a nuclear weapon. So if we can control the quantities, the amounts, the access to, we can prevent things like nuclear terrorism. Yeah. The one thing that we are worried about from a nuclear security standpoint is the more readily available isotopes like cesium, radium, things that are in a lot of medical equipment, and a lot of medical isotopes. And while they cannot be turned into a nuclear weapon, they could potentially be made into a dirty bomb, something mm -hmm. that would just spread radiation around, but that in terms of explosive power would just be mm -hmm. a stick of TNT or whatever, you know. Yeah. A weapon of mass disruption. Yes. As opposed to to destruction. But uh, again, the government has been working and, and governments around the world have been working very specifically on how to control these kinds of materials. Adnan from Pakistan wants to know, why do international nuclear regimes fail to avoid proliferation of nuclear weapons to the states like Iran and North Korea? Why are international nuclear regimes discriminatory and serve the interests of few states? So we have not had a 100% track record of preventing proliferation. Um, there were five recognized nuclear weapons states when the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty went into force in 1970, and we now have nine. So it's not great, but it's not terrible. There was a time where we worried we might have 40 to 50 nuclear weapons states in the world. So uh, I think we're on the right track. But to really get at the core proliferation issues, you have to get into why a country would pursue the capability in the first place. Is it for regime security? Is it for prestige? A number of factors go into this decision-making process. And trying to stem some of those desires to get a program is, is where the work really needs to be. Because once a country goes nuclear, having them go back is, is a lot harder. And when it comes to Iran, they don't actually have a nuclear weapon yet. We actually were able to get there through the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action to stop the progress. And it was a deal that I think was working. I, I think it was a mistake for the United States to withdraw from that agreement. And I think we have to be spending a lot of time on figuring out how to get back into a new agreement. As far as the discriminatory issue, international agreements, treaties, regimes... It's sort of imperfect by nature. There, there is a constant process that needs to be undergone to how to make all of these agreements work for more countries. And humans are fallible. But I think the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty has been essential in stemming the broad spread of, of nuclear weapons programs. And we really need to build and strengthen that agreement and, and go forward. Yeah, and I, I think that there is an important piece of strategy involved here, too, at least looking from the United States standpoint. We want to do everything that we possibly can to disincentivize other nations from saying, hey, we need our own nuclear weapons. If that's our allies, it says, you know what, no matter what, the United States is there to protect you. That's why you're our ally. We're happy to you know, share the security burden that it might be necessary from you. With other states, 
the United States needs to continue to show that it has a pathway to relieve pressures on countries that might feel like they need nuclear weapons while still disincentivizing it. And most of all, I'm thinking here that we've seen a problem over the past couple of years where with one hand, the United States has reached out to North Korea promising to lift sanctions if they negotiate parts of their nuclear weapons regime away, while at the other hand, we've destroyed one of the most intrusive nuclear weapons agreement with with Iran. And so what sort of message is that sending to the world? Like the United States can't be trusted between president and president? A very confusing message. Yeah, yeah. Like, is it showing that we won't keep to the deals that we negotiate? Is it a risk that if a nuclear-armed state gives up their nuclear weapons, all of a sudden the United States is going to park 14,000 soldiers off their doorstep. That sort of security assurance, when we make a deal with somebody about removing the most dangerous weapons on the planet, we have to mean it and we have to follow through with our commitments there. All right. And our last question, Tom from Carefree, Arizona wants to know, at what universities are new nuclear weapons, including delivery systems and anti-nuclear shields being developed? First, Carefree is a great name for a town, (laughs) but uh, that's a new one on me. But universities around the country do participate in various intellectual enterprises having to do with the nuclear weapons infrastructure here in the United States. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I think universities and and academics can ask tougher questions and and be a little bit more probing on issues that maybe inside the government you're just sort of moving on uh, autopilot. But we're not actually developing new nuclear weapons at the moment. I I hope that remains the case. This administration has modified a a warhead recently called the W-76-2. There are rumors that potentially they're interested in, in more new and different nuclear warheads. I, I, I think that would be a, a problem, not necessarily related to how universities are working with it, but rather as a, as a principle for the government. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem here is that with the exception of actually building bombs themselves, it is sometimes hard to pull apart the nuclear adjacent activities, the weapons activities. I mean, this is science. <laughs> the space program was built off of ICBMs. You know, there's also verification. There's right. non-proliferation efforts, nuclear right. security efforts, forensic efforts. Yeah, and so much of this, so much of the things that go into nuclear weapons programs and anti-missile defense programs, and all this is better radars and better. You know, that is being worked all around the world in different universities and science labs. I think that the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons released a report talking about weapon-specific activities at universities that I'm sure can be found on their website. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a matter of public record as well. Yeah, uh, I actually think that it was probably even a, a tighter relationship during the Cold War mm-hmm. because it was what was driving the defense industrial complex at the time. But as we said, you know, a, a lot of those efforts relating to nuclear security nuclear forensics. These are things that we need for arms control and non-proliferation purposes. Thank you to everyone who submitted your questions for our first ever mailbag episode. We had a great time doing this and plan to do more episodes like this in the future. If you have a question about anything you heard today, or you want to submit a new question for a future mailbag episode, please go ahead and email podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at nukes underscore of underscore hazard and on facebook at facebook.com slash arms control center look forward to talking to you more in the new year <laughs>